You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. This traffic is not moving, and I'm stuck. This was not part of the plan. You know what the plan was. The plan was the dream of every kid of the 1950s. In fact, it wasn't just a dream. It was some sort of promise. A promise that in my lifetime, I could trade in this earthbound auto for a flying car. After all, they were all over the popular science magazines of the 1940s and the 50s. And in televisions, the Jetsons made flying cars a part of the everyday commute. Okay, that was a cartoon, but it certainly felt visionary. After all, the Jetsons high-rise architecture was inspired by buildings that already existed in Los Angeles in the early 1960s. You think of the theme building of the LA airport, you'll see the prototype of the Jetsons cloud-scraping apartment building. So surely that show was also keeping up with the transportation trends. Then the movie Back to the Future gave us a deadline. We'd have flying cars by October 2015. Now, you don't have to worry about traffic. I'll hover convert your old road car into a Skyway Flyer. Well, October 2015 has come and gone. And here I am, still stuck in traffic jams instead of hovering above the congestion in my nifty Aero Mercury 5000. So what happened? Where's my flying car? I'm Seth Shostak, who's still a mile away from the studio. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and this episode is and isn't about what you think. It's about flying cars, in a way. But to understand why we don't yet have airborne autos, or whether we ever will, we need to understand why this is such a difficult problem. I mean, after all, it certainly has been solved in the animal world, Tens of millions of years of unfunded R&D in birds, insects, and some mammals has perfected the mechanics of taking to the air. Meanwhile, humans have had a measly century of aeronautics experience, and that's not much. So have we gone as far as we can go? How might tomorrow's airplanes be different than today's? We're winging it on Big Picture Science. We don't have flying cars, and I'll try to momentarily stifle my disappointment and consider the many examples of successful flight we find all around us in nature. Now you're probably thinking we're about to discuss birds. Well, not to take anything away from our flighty feathered friends, but birds are already widely celebrated for their aerodynamic abilities. Let's give some air time to another flying creature. 
one this man knows something about. I'm Dr. Merlin Tuttle. I'm the founder and executive director of Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. Have you ever been called Batman? Uh, Many times. And there's a reason for that. Ecologist Merlin Tuttle has devoted five decades to studying and photographing bats. In 1982, he founded Bat Conservation International. He's traveled to caves and batty spots all over the world to study and photograph these winged wonders, species that have suffered from the reputation of being terrifying, bloodthirsty predators. And that's exactly the reputation that Dr. Tuttle has wanted to change. He's probably done more than anyone to modify the public's mind about these curious creatures. He says that bats are intelligent, they are gentle enough to pet, and their appetite for insects makes them efficient forms of pest control. And when it comes to flying, despite their herky-jerky aerobatics, bats are actually more efficient flyers than birds. Today, Dr. Tuttle leads a second bat conservation nonprofit, Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. And the book about his adventures, complete with some stunning photography, is The Secret Life of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Animals. Merlin, you walk into caves where there are 100,000 bats clustering, and I've seen you in videos standing below thousands and thousands of flying bats overhead. Now, most of us would be ducking for cover, and yet you are looking up. So I wonder if you could describe for us what it's like to have thousands of bats around you dangling from cave walls or flying overhead. In truth, I've spent whole days, every day, weeks at a time, surrounded not by hundreds of thousands, but by millions of bats in caves. It's certainly a unique experience, but one of the least frightening that I can imagine. I'd be far more frightened of walking late at night downtown. Say more what that's like to have them all around you. Can you feel their body heat? Absolutely. When I first entered Bracken Cave, home of the world's largest remaining bat population, I immediately could feel the heat radiating out from the bats covering the walls. The walls are coated with 200 to 500 bats per square foot, covering thousands of square feet, literally 200 tons or more of bats. And as you walk into the cave and approach one of the walls, you can actually feel the heat from the bats' radiated body heat coming just like you're walking up to a a heater in a house. The body heat of the bats in Bracken Cave averages about 102 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's a very hot, difficult place for a human to feel in any way comfortable. (laughs) And is that why they cluster together like that, to keep each other warm? Well, bats are very sophisticated. Recent studies indicate that Even small insect-eating bats have social systems that are strikingly similar to those of higher primates and dolphins and elephants. They have very long memories. They share information. They adopt orphans. All kinds of things that we would never really expect a tiny animal like a bat to do. They are extremely well organized. For example, during their morning return, this is, should end up being a traffic jam that would absolutely give nightmares to any airport traffic controller. You have 10 to 20 million bats deciding to come home <laughs> at dawn, and they circle thousands of feet above the cave in great flocks, and somehow those flocks know when it's their turn to dive for the cave, 
and they dive at close to 80 miles an hour, you can hear each bat. It's, it's, it's like the roar of a waterfall when you stand close to the column of bats entering, and it's a continuous column. There's almost no break in the column, 80-mile-an-hour moving bats that as soon as they enter the cave have to suddenly put on the brakes. You can hear them, each one going by, and then all of a sudden putting on the brakes, and they must have to within just almost split seconds figure out where they're going to roost or they'd cause a huge rear end (laughs) bumper collision. And how do they put on the brakes with their manipulating their wings in some way? Yes, yes. And they have fabulous wings that are, in fact, the most efficient out there, much more efficient than either insects or birds because they are membranous and they have multi-digited fingers in those membranous wings so that they can manipulate them much more effectively than other flying creatures can. So, for example, with a bird, the wing is fixed, and what you're saying is this is mutable. It can move with different joints and so forth. Oh, absolutely. A bat can fly up to a, an insect at high speed and reach out and grab it with a wingtip. Their wings are just expanded hands with long fingers with a double layer of membrane between, and they can manipulate those fingers just like we do our hands. So in high-speed flight, a bat can just reach out and grab an insect in a wingtip and put it in its mouth. It can catch it in its tail membrane. It can catch it in many different ways. That's incredible. So while it's flying and it's using its wings, this jointed, many jointed wings to fly, it catches the insect with one of the wings and can pop it into its mouth while it continues flying. That's part of why we see bats seeming to be so erratic when they're flying is because <laughs> that oftentimes was my next they're, yeah. they're popping insects in their mouths. And in fact, it's possible for one bat to catch two or three insects in a single second. Now, the title of your book, and actually your life's work, has really been devoted to correcting the misunderstanding about bats. Your your subtitle is My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Animals. And in what ways are they misunderstood? Humans just naturally fear most what they understand least, and bats have the misfortune of being active predominantly only at night, flying erratically, showing up in unexpected places, living in places people often think of as spooky places like attics or caves. And so it's it's no wonder that, that people have somewhat of a inborn fear of bats. But actually where bats are very large with three to six foot wingspans and live out in the open where people can see them, people eulogize them as folk heroes. We're only afraid of bats where they're small and, and hard to get acquainted with. And you fell in love with them, if that's the best way to put it, when you were a, a teenager, I believe. What was it about bats that, that captured your imagination? Well, bats are truly incredible animals. There are more than 1,300 species in the world. They live everywhere but in the most extreme desert and polar regions. They can be just as cute as any panda or as weird as any dinosaur. They range from tiny little bumblebee bats that weigh a third less than a penny to giant flying foxes with close to six-foot wingspans. And 
it's amazing how little we know about them and how much there is to discover. Well, you, you've taken incredible photos of bats, and the photos that you take are not meant to evoke terror, which is how many bats are photographed, right, in these sort of scary, scary images. And, and I wonder if you could just describe the approach that you take in your photography. I got started photographing bats basically in defense of bats when I wrote it, was asked to write a book chapter for National Geographic and found that all the pictures they were going to put with my chapter showed bats tormented, snarling, and self-defense. You take an animal whose head is the size of your thumb or smaller, he's scared, he shuts his eyes, clamps his mouth, he doesn't want to do anything, he thinks you're about to eat him. So you blow in his face or do something to aggravate him, he opens his mouth and snarls in self-defense, you snap his picture, then you blow it up to page size, and it looks like a saber-toothed tiger on the offensive. So National Geographic offered to send one of their staff photographers, Bates Little Hales, out to the field with me to try to get some good pictures of bats. When um, we were finished working together, he gave me the rest of his film and said, why don't you try You've now learned everything I know about how to do it, but you understand the bats too. And the key to getting good pictures of bats is, of course, understanding the bats, not just being a good photographer. Well, it also takes incredible patience. Now, speaking of the faces of bats, in your book, you have photographs of just bat faces. And what's remarkable is how varied they are. You know, some of the bats look like a, a fox, perhaps, the, you know, the face of a fox. Others have these enormous pointed ears. And then there are others with just bent snouts or really intricate snouts. Do we understand what the evolutionary advantage is of each of these different mugs? We're just beginning to scratch the surface on that score, but all these incredible faces are part of a navigation system that is so sophisticated that scientists have speculated that it's probably watt per watt, ounce per ounce, billions of times more efficient than anything humans have ever developed. So we've got a long ways to go in trying to understand fully what all those strange faces are about. If a photo doesn't work, you said, and you've done some incredible photos, one of the ways to convince someone that the only good bat is a dead bat is is not true is to point out that they are essential pollinators and also a, a cheap form of pest control. And uh, you write that you can win over a potato grower by showing him a pile of bat dung. Uh, why is that? Well, one time in Tennessee, I asked a hillbilly farmer permission to go to his bat cave to study bats. He assumed that scientists just kill bats for research, so he asked me if I could kill all I could while I was there instead of arguing with him about why bats shouldn't be killed. I just went into his cave picked up some droppings under the roost that include conspicuous potato bug beetle wings, brought them out and said, oh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what all these bats are eating. Have you ever seen anything that looks like this? And you could see his eyes get big and all of a sudden the light's dawning and he's saying, oh my God, those blank, blank potato bugs, the bats eat them bugs? How many? I said, well, they don't just eat potato bugs, they eat corn earworm moths I see have some corn over there and they eat mosquitoes and well how many I said well I don't know how to count how many but a colony the size of yours probably eats a hundred pounds of insects in a night and he says oh my oh 
that's a lot of bugs. And next time I came back, anybody trying to interfere with his bats would have been run off the property at the end of a shotgun. <laughs> Our world would be extremely different without bats controlling vast numbers of insect pests that fly at night, without bats pollinating many of our favorite food crops, without bats dispersing seeds that keep our forests healthy. Whole ecosystems from deserts to rainforests rely heavily on large populations of bats. The future of bats depends on our getting people over their fears and educating them to the, what bats actually do for each of us every night. Merlin Tuttle, thank you so much for speaking with us. Merlin, I have to say I was hoping you could tell the story of dropping into that cave and being nearly asphyxiated by ammonia rising up from bat dung, but I'm afraid we'll have to leave that story for another time. You're very welcome. We'll have to speak another time to get all this other material in. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to it. Merlin Tuttle is an ecologist who has devoted five decades to studying and photographing bats. He's the founder of Bat Conservation International, and he leads the nonprofit Merlin Tuttle's Bat Conservation. A book of his adventures that includes some of his photography is The Secret Life of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Animals. You can join his effort or view his photography using a link posted on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And I do recommend checking out his photography. His photos of bats are incredible. And all of them crowded into a cave like that for warmth, I guess, when it's cold. And I don't know what they're doing when it's hot, but, you know, it reminds me of penguins. But so do their social systems, adopting orphans and all that. I mean, that's, that's what penguins do? Well, I, you know, they'll take care of lost chicks and stuff like that. And the other thing that struck me that bats are about as important to agriculture as bees are because they get rid of all these insects. Coming up, bats do it, but birds and bees also do it. And so did the terrifying pterosaurs during the Jurassic. The ability to fly has evolved many times separately in animals and insects. Discover its evolutionary benefits. And no, they're not doing it just to have fun. Meanwhile, I'm hoping that what we learn will give me an advantage in traffic with a flying car. We're winging it on Big Picture Science. Engineers who are designing future airplanes may find inspiration in the flexible wings and superb aerodynamic abilities of bats. But imagine if the actual flying of an airplane mimicked these animals' crazy aeronautic maneuvers. We'd all be reaching for that little bag in the seat pocket. So we're fortunate that the Wright brothers powered their way into the air at Kitty Hawk, inspired by the graceful and steady flight of birds. But bats and birds are not the only creatures that evolution nudged into the air. Ecologist and evolutionary biologist David Alexander at the University of Kansas says flight evolved many times independently in what's known as convergent evolution. Now, why is it that the Wright brothers and other airborne hopefuls took inspiration from flying animals but didn't copy their mechanics outright? Dr. Alexander addressed that in his book, Why Don't Jumbo Jets Flap Their Wings? And he'll tell us why that is, by the way. But his latest book is on how the heck flying emerged in the first place. On the wing, insects, pterosaurs, birds, bats, and the evolution of animal flight. 
Now, before we take off, we remind you that there are four forces acting on a flying plane, and you need to consider them if you want to stay aloft for longer than you would jumping off a chair. Those four forces are weight, otherwise known as load, lift, thrust, and drag. You see, when lift plus thrust is greater than load plus drag, well, anything will fly. Load, the weight of the aircraft, is the downward force of gravity. Lift, well, that's a force that acts at right angles to the aircraft and keeps it aloft. The third, thrust, is provided by the engines, and that propels the aircraft forward. And drag in flying doesn't refer to the long lines at security. Drag is a force that works in the opposite direction of motion. Friction causes drag. Animals and insects that fly have to contend with these forces as well. But their strategies for overcoming them are different from those of airplanes. David, let me get this straight, because critters in general don't fly the way airplanes do, do they? I mean, they don't have propellers or jet engines to propel themselves through the air while a fixed wing gives them lift. That's not the way they work, right? No, that's not the way they work at all. In fact, I would say that's the fundamental difference between flying animals and airplanes. As you mentioned, an airplane would have some kind of an engine separate from the wings. What the flying animals do is they produce both the lift and the thrust, the upward force and the forward force with their wings. And in fact, that's why they flap. If they stop flapping, it's not that they fall out of the air, it's just that they decelerate and eventually they won't be flying fast enough to to glide anymore. But if they want to keep going, then they have to flap their wings, and the reason they flap their wings is to produce thrust. A bird wing actually functions more like a helicopter rotor than, say, uh, an airliner's wing. In your book, David, you look at birds, bats, but also insects and even pterosaurs. Are there rules of aerodynamics that we can, say, apply to all four of these kinds of critters? I mean, they all flap their wings, right? Yeah, I would say that the flapping process is an important rule. Like I said, any flying animal flaps its wings to produce thrust. The wings all work basically the same way, but the efficiency changes. So when you get to be really small, like a fruit fly, your wings are just not very efficient. But you can make up for it by the fact that if you're really small, your muscles are a little more effective because of surface-to-volume ratio scaling effects. So what it means is that if you're really small, the wings work the same way, but they're just not quite as efficient. If you're really big, then the wings are more efficient, and that's why it's easier for big animals to soar and to glide. The basic operating principle of the wing is the same, whether you're a fruit fly or an eagle. Okay, so it sounds like the big animals, which you might think weren't very good at flying because they're big, can sort of make up for that by having bigger wings. I mean, is there any upper limit to that? You know, could pigs fly or maybe elephants if they just had evolved really, really big wings? The trade-off comes down to the structural strength of the wings versus the weight. And there seems to be an upper limit in the sense that if you get to be too big, you just can't make wings strong enough to carry your weight. We can do it with machines because we can make wings out of metal or exotic composite materials. But if you're a bird, you really just have to do it with feathers and bones. And if you get to be much bigger than a condor, it just is hard to design a wing. It's hard to evolve a wing that will carry your weight. There were some animals, flying animals, that were bigger, but they were fairly rare and unusual. 
Oh, so there's hope for the pigs. Uh, you know, <laughs> you've studied, of course, the evolution of flying, how it evolved, why it evolved. And that's obviously a puzzle. You can't fly with a tiny little wing, I don't think, unless you're a very tiny little critter. How did flying get started? How, what were the first animals that were able to do something you would say is flight? Well, the insects came first. The insects got to it long before anybody else, uh, by hundreds of millions of years. And one of the problems is that we don't really have much in the way of fossil evidence. So other than for birds, we are working more on the evidence of animals that were already pretty good flyers. And it's pretty clear in the case of birds that they were in elevated places, probably trees, and probably jumping from one tree to another, and they evolve something like kind of a flying squirrel kind of mechanism, although the, the structure was very different. So they glided from tree to tree and then eventually evolved flapping. We think something like that probably happened with the other groups, but uh, we don't have direct evidence for it right now. Okay, so the uh, first critters to take flight were actually just jumping longer and longer distances, presumably, which I suppose was a benefit to them, and, and eventually they were able to keep themselves in the air, not always having to fly downward. That's right. If you're gliding, you're limited to descending. You can't go upwards, at least you can't go upwards continuously. You can go upwards a little bit, and then the wing stalls and you fall. But if you want to maintain level flight, you have to be able to flap. And I think most biologists who have, have studied this are pretty convinced that the major benefit for animals that evolved gliding was to escape predators. It's also possible that it, there was just some efficiency involved because it is more efficient to glide from one branch to another than to run down the trunk of the tree, run across the empty space, and then run back up. Now, here's a fact that'll give some people the shivers, I imagine. Some insects once flew, but no longer do so. Fleas and bedbugs, for example. H how do we know that's the case, by the way, and what happened? Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of insects that have lost the power of flight. And we know that because, for example, in the case of fleas, they have uh, what we call complete metamorphosis, that is, they have a larval stage and a pupal stage and adult stage, and flight evolved in insects long before complete metamorphosis. So that means that basically, if they have complete metamorphosis, their ancestors flew. So for fleas, it's a no-brainer. For bed bugs, it's a little bit trickier, but their closest relatives are the group that entomologists call true bugs, and true bugs include stink bugs and a number of other insects that can fly. So again, their family tree is nested deeply in the family tree of flying insects. So it's, there's no question at all that those insects lost the ability to fly. And it's not a coincidence that they're both parasites. They basically have evolved to use their host for transportation instead of using wings to get around. Let's switch to the subject of uh, flying reptiles and the evolution of flight in the, the pterosaur. They ruled the skies in the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. First off, is a pterosaur the same as a pterodactyl? Every kid knows about pterodactyls. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you asked about that. The common name that we often hear used is pterodactyl, but 
it can be ambiguous if you're speaking technically. What's kind of interesting about these pterosaurs is that they're not related to bats or to birds. They're an example of convergent evolution. Maybe you could explain that and how it ensured that flight would evolve, you know, probably more than once. Yes, convergent evolution is when you have animals that evolve separately to perform the same function. And so we have pterosaurs that evolved completely separately from birds and bats, and birds evolved wings, and bats evolved wings, and pterosaurs evolved wings all at different times. The pterosaur wing looks kind of like a bat wing, but bats have several fingers that help support their wing membrane, and the pterosaur just has one great big finger. In fact, that's what pterodactyl means. It means wing finger. But the wing has to do the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a bird or a bat or a pterosaur. The wing has to do the same thing. It has to be able to flap. It has to be able to produce lift and thrust. And it also is really handy if you can fold it up. Unlike, say, the uh, Piper Cub out at the airport, most animals really can't get around on the ground very well unless they can fold up their wings. And so that's another convergence between bats and birds and probably pterosaurs, although it's a little bit hard to tell from the fossil evidence. They can fold up their wings when they're not using them. That prompts me to ask, have we learned something from these studies of the critters that, that would help us with our own efforts to take to the air? Well, the short answer to that is we probably learned less than you might expect. And that's because, as I said early on, flying animals flap their wings to produce thrust. And we don't have a kind of machinery that makes flapping wings efficient. The kind of machinery that we have makes spinning things like propellers and turbines more efficient. So in fundamental ways, flying in animals is different from flying in airplanes. But on the other hand, wings are wings are wings. And so I would say that maybe the most important thing that we learn from flying animals is that the way to fly is to use wings. So I'm not sure if there were no flying animals that it would occur to a person that, hey, if I want to fly, I need these big flat things sticking out to the side. Now, it is also true that the Wright brothers said in their writings that they figured out turning by watching birds. And I think that's really amazing because what they really figured out was how to maneuver an airplane. Their big contribution, in my view, was learning how to steer. Where other people thought they could just get by with rudders, the Wright brothers figured out you need to do it with the wings. And they claimed that they figured that out by watching birds. So I would say that's a pretty impressive tech transfer that we got from flying animals. Well, finally, David, uh, on the basis of your studies and what you've told me, it doesn't sound like you believe that uh, future jumbo jets are going to get around by flapping their wings. No, I don't think so. I think it's pretty safe to say that any large flying machine will continue to fly with fixed wings. But I would also say that there are some definite technological advantages, if you're really small, to flapping. And the cutting edge in what we call biomimicry or borrowing from nature these days is in micro air vehicles that can flap their wings. So it's not unexpected to see that there are very tiny robotic flappers that are being developed for flight. David Alexander, 
it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. It was fun to talk about this. David Alexander is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of Kansas, where he specializes in animal flight mechanics. His book, On the Wing, Insects, Pterosaurs, Birds, Bats, and the Evolution of Animal Flight. And it's interesting that he says that we didn't learn all that much from watching animals as we built our first aircraft. Uh, So the Wright brothers were more inclined to look at a bird for some inspiration, but they didn't study, say, the bumblebee. No, they didn't model their their first plane wasn't modeled after a bumblebee. Well, did listening to Dr. Alexander give you hope about your flying car? Well, he didn't comment on that directly, but it does sound that if you were to build one, because it's a big thing, it's going to have to have a fixed wing. And beyond that, it would be good if those wings would, you know, kind of fold up, although that strikes me as harder to do than getting a rag top into the trunk of a convertible. So technically, it's kind of a challenge. It sounds like a very difficult one. Coming up, birds may have inspired the Wright Brothers plane, but the way that the cut on your hand forms a scab and heals has inspired new materials for airplanes, those that self-repair. We're winging it on Big Picture Science. guessing that if someone does build a flying car, the wings will have to be fixed because it's apparently hard to make a big thing fly by flapping. So maybe flying cars, despite their novelty, won't be causing a flap. That is, if we ever have them. But even if we don't, that doesn't mean that the flying machines of tomorrow will be the same as those we have today. My name is Duncan Wass. I'm professor of chemistry at the University of Bristol in the UK. So how is a chemist involved in building the next generation of airplanes? Dr. Wass and his team are creating a material with self-healing properties so that airplane wings can fix damage or structural failure themselves. Even the researchers involved in the project have described it as verging on science fiction. The wings would be built of a modified version of what's called carbon fiber reinforced composite material. It's lightweight, and it's already used in the manufacture of airplane wings, but also in tennis rackets and bicycles. But Dr. Wass and his team have added to it tiny microspheres that are filled with a healing liquid that would repair cracked wings. These cracks are not the sort of thing that you would see with the naked eye. You know, if we've got something that's a huge hole in an airplane wing, then we're not going to be able to repair that. But if we have a sort of micro crack, the sort of thing you can't even see, it could lead to catastrophic damage. And if we can repair those, then we can extend the aeroplane lifetime and we can improve safety. I mean, really, we take our inspiration from natural systems. If you think of the human body, if we if we get damaged, if you cut your finger, we don't have to repair that damage. The damage repairs itself. The cut bleeds, it scabs, it heals. And we want to have aeroplane wings that do the same thing. So kind of explain, over what time scale does this happen? I mean, a crack develops, does this thing repair itself essentially immediately, or does it take a month? What happens? 
Okay, it depends is the answer, and it depends specifically on the temperature. So chemical reactions go more quickly if the temperature is higher. So if we've got our aeroplane parked in a a desert somewhere, it will repair very quickly. Um, If we're flying at 30,000 feet, the air temperature is very cold, it will be rather more slow. But we may be talking um, between minutes and hours, maybe up to a couple of days. Well, is that quickly enough to be useful? I mean, if I'm in an airplane and somebody tells me, well, there's a crack here, but don't worry, it'll be fixed in a few weeks. I I don't know that that would assuage my fears. Yeah, it is quickly enough to be useful because these micro cracks can persist for a long time in a wing before it leads to something more serious and more catastrophic. So, in fact, there's quite a, a window we have to repair these things and arrest them before it could lead to something more serious. Is it something you could see happening? I mean, if you had a window seat over a wing, you say they're micro cracks. So to me, that sounds like all of this is going to be invisible to the passengers. But I, I kind of wonder whether I could see this happening. No, indeed, it would be invisible to the passengers. In fact, it might not even be happening on the outside of the wing. It's more likely that it's going to be happening in the internal structure. So even if it was a much larger crack, you still wouldn't see it. And indeed, that's part of the problem, that even engineers that are inspecting these things, it's very difficult to see where these cracks are. Well, let's look at the material itself. It's something called carbon fiber reinforced composite material, which is something that I would wish to be repaired itself, so it would be easier to say. That's not a new material, is it? It's not a new material, and people, I'm sure, would be familiar with these materials. They're used in sports equipment, so if you've got a carbon fibre tennis racket or golf clubs or fishing rods, and they're very light materials but very strong materials. And, of course, if you've got something which is very strong but also very light, it's really perfect in aerospace applications. Okay, but your new scheme... Uh, modifies this material before the airplane is built, obviously, and how does it affect the repair? The approach that we've taken to this is by encapsulating a healing agent in tiny microspheres. So these are tiny capsules. You'd get several of these across the width of a human hair and with a hard outer shell but a liquid healing agent in the interior. If we then embed those within the material of the aeroplane, we also embed a trigger material called a catalyst, um, which causes a, a chemical reaction to happen if it comes into contact with the healing agent. And if we get a crack that comes into the material, it bursts open these tiny capsules, the liquid interior leaks out, it comes into contact with this catalyst, which is the, the trigger for the healing event, and it quite literally glues the crack back together. It goes from a liquid healing agent to a hard, solid material, um, which will glue the crack. That sounds very much to me like the two-component epoxy resin I buy at the local hardware store for repairs around the house where you have to mix these two compounds together. Separately, they don't do much, but once mixed together, you have a couple of minutes before it turns into something solid and very strong. Yeah, it's related to that. And in fact, the healing agent is very similar to those sorts of materials. So those epoxy resins are in fact what are used to glue together all of the fibres in these carbon fibre materials. One slight difference is that for your two-part epoxy, you need to get the mixing just right. You need to have equal amounts of the two components. In our approach, you only need a tiny amount of the catalyst. It really is a trigger. Um, So it means in events like damage, where by definition it's difficult to predict what's going on, we don't have to worry about getting the mixing exactly right. 
Well, Duncan, why do we need this? I don't want to be skeptical here, but personally, if I were going to invest in aviation technologies for the future, I guess I'd prefer a practical supersonic aircraft or that flying car I keep hoping for. But that's just me. I mean, how does this technology improve my gusto-grabbing lifestyle? Okay, well, I guess, well, a flying car would be great, wouldn't it? We'd all love one of those. Mm-hmm. I think that how this can improve things is really it changes the design concept for aeroplanes. The minute these things are over-engineered, they have to withstand damage, they have to be safe. Here we could use less material and we could allow it to repair itself. And if we're designing them to use less material, they're going to be lighter. If the aeroplane is lighter, that means it needs less fuel. So there are kind of green benefits to this as well. Well, finally, Duncan, how significant is this to the future of aviation? I mean, lighter aircraft, that's clearly an economic benefit. Is this going to change aviation in a significant way, do you think? Well, who knows, but I think self-repairing materials or smart materials in general will change the way that we look at materials, whether that be in aviation or other applications, so that these things can repair themselves, they can change colour, they can tell us if they're damaged. And I think those increasingly intelligent materials are something that we will definitely see in the future. Duncan Wass, thanks so very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Duncan Wass is a professor of chemistry at the University of Bristol in the UK. Well, it sounds as if the airplanes of the future will be made of smart materials, and I'm grateful for that. But I was so hoping to see my dream come true, the dream of a flying car. But even Dr. Wass chuckled at that idea, so I guess I'll have to let this go. Don't let your dreams of flying cars go, Seth. It might still happen. But but who are you? My name is Sanjeev Singh, and I'm a roboticist at Carnegie Mellon University. Well, are you building flying cars? Not right now, but I used to work on a flying car project for DARPA. But now I'm working on autonomous flight systems, and you'll need them if we're ever to build flying cars. Wow. Hey, that's great. Can you talk for a moment? Sure. All right. I, of course, want to talk about what you're doing now. But first, you used to work on a flying car project for DARPA, a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Can you say something about the proposed design and, in general, how a car could transform into an airplane? Yeah, I think the key idea of this project was to have a vehicle that could both drive and fly. And, uh, you know, driving is easy. We all learn how to do it. But the flying part is difficult. I mean, it's difficult for lots of reasons. It's uh, difficult because the physics of flying are not so conducive to things going vertically up and down. So that's one thing. The second thing is it's typically pretty hard to control these kinds of vehicles. So what we suggested was that if you are to have flying cars that could be operated by um, the layperson, somebody who hasn't had intensive helicopter pilot training, then it would have to be autonomous, sort of like in the Jetsons. Uh, autonomous. I'll get back to that in a moment, but I'm, I'm first just trying to picture this. I mean, would this flying car have wings or, or rotors or something that could retract, or would everything kind of be fixed in place? I mean, that might make it hard to park. You're absolutely right. You might need something like rotors, and you might need some sort of ducted fans that could help the vehicle go up and down. But you said they'd have to be autonomous. You know, they, they, they got to kind of fly themselves. Why is that important? I mean, that sounds to me like it's taken some of the fun out of it. Yeah, um, maybe. You know, the idea is that it takes quite a lot of practice 
and a lot of skill to be able to guide these vehicles. Um, we're not used to controlling things that go up and down. These things cannot go infinitely up and down. They are controllable to some limit. So, for example, if you took off, you might have to go forward a little bit before you can go up to just be able to build up the momentum. And that path might change on a warm day to a cold day just because of the physics. So the idea is that, you know, it takes some practice to know how much to control the vehicle so that you're going to be able to clear the trees as you take off. And this is the kind of thing that the autonomy could really help you with. Now, I don't know if you can answer this, but is DARPA still thinking about, you know, the equivalent of a flying car, albeit for the military? Well, there was a motivation for it at one point. The problem is that the physics are very hard. It's tough to beat gravity. So that flying car project morphed into something that is a modular idea, and it could actually go onto a car. So think of it like a flying wing. Okay, And it could fly on its own. It could carry a cargo module underneath it. The cargo module underneath it could be also be replaced by a car-like vehicle. So the notion is that it turned into a concept where the emphasis became on the flying wing itself and not on the driving part. Well, okay, it doesn't sound to me like uh, DARPA is going to do the research that's going to give me the flying car, even though they've done research that's produced lots of commercial products. Uh, a lot of stuff has come out of military research. So who is going to—is anybody going to do it? I mean, can I count on, I don't know, maybe Elon Musk to start up a flying car company, or, or is it just really so hard that, you know, not now? So, in fact, there are a couple of commercial companies that are— working on this concept of a flying car. The most recent one that I've seen is a company from China called E-Hang that has come out with a car that looks like a quadrotor. This is one of these small hobbyist things scaled up so that it could actually have a cabin for a single person to sit inside. There's another company in Boston called Terrafugia that's working on a flying car. So if you go to their website, they actually claim we built flying cars. And the one product they have is actually quite interesting because rather than it being a car that flies, it is really more like an airplane that drives. It's actually a very interesting distinction because it's not VTOL or vertical takeoff and landing. So imagine that you had something, a vehicle, in your garage. You got in it. You could then drive it to an airport or a runway anyway. And then uh, you push a button and the wings sort of fold out, become rigid, and turns into an airplane and then you can fly it. When you get to where you're going, again, the wings fold up again and become something that looks like a car and you drive it to where you're going. So Terrafuja has been working on this concept for several years. Well, Sanchev, you're still working on autonomous vehicles, even if it isn't a flying car. In fact, you lead a startup called Near Earth Autonomy and you've apparently created an autonomous helicopter. What can that do? So the idea with the autonomous helicopter is to do all the things that helicopters do today, but do it without requiring a skilled pilot. And the application for this? I mean, who, who wants this thing? There are lots of applications, but one application is carrying cargo. For various reasons, we might want to have a helicopter that carries cargo to places where there may be some threat or there may be some risk to pilots. Another application in general is casualty evacuation, medical evacuation, for example, so medevac. 
would be another application where you have to quickly take somebody who has been injured for medical care. What, what kind of sensors are involved for it to uh, kind of sense its environment and also know its location? For sensing its environment, what we do is we use various forms of cameras. We use LIDAR, which is lasers that measure distance at a very high rate. We use radar sometimes. We also use inertial navigation and GPS, so to figure out where the vehicle is at very high rate. But essentially, what you're, the, the part that's hard and the part that's at risk is the part of the flight where the vehicle is flying very close to the terrain and it's going places where it needn't have gone before. So when you have an aircraft that flies from one airport to the other, it's always following very known takeoff and landing pads. Okay, You're unlikely to put an airport where there's a tower right in the approach path. So you know, as long as you stay within some corridors, you're guaranteed to be safe. But when you're going somewhere that you haven't been to before, you don't know a priori whether there's going to be a tower, there are going to be trees, there are going to be wires, or maybe even some terrain that you hadn't anticipated. So that's what makes the problem difficult. Sanjeev Singh, thank you so very much for speaking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you. Sanjeev Singh is a roboticist at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. So what we've learned in the show is, to begin with, that flying car, well, I may not get it before my next birthday, but I also would kind of like it to be able to fly like a bat because they're, they're fast and they have this amazing navigational equipment. And, you know, the other thing about that is that that's an old technology. Flying was evolved hundreds of millions of years ago by critters, if not by us. It might be very hard to create wings that are as malleable as a bat's wings that would also be able to support a flying car. And, and also fold up, because I think that would be desirable if you only have a one-car garage. But the thing that was really hard about the flying car, I think, is that it has to be able to fly between any two points, you know, from your backyard to somebody else's backyard. It's not like a commercial jet that always flies from one airport to another airport. Well, luckily, there are many examples of flying that we can admire in nature. Yes, yes, I admire them more. Well, thanks to those who make the show possible and who are definitely not airbrained, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and our intern, Aaron Ross. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to winging it. And if you crave more Big Picture Science, you can find it on our archive at bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, after all, like planes, it's airborne, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen using iTunes, we invite you to leave a review about Big Picture Science on our iTunes page. And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise and email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Going home certainly hasn't gotten any better. Maybe I'll listen to the radio. Hey, what's this button? Just says air. Well, it's kind of hot in here. Whoa! That premium package upgrade that I bought for this car sure has some surprising benefits. So long, you earthbound suckers! 
Hope there's food on this flight.